Our fifth, fifth lesson is from the letter to the Thessalonians. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as you in fact are doing. This is the word of the Lord. So maybe you're worried about, uh, this is going to be a sermon on drinking and sobriety and in Birvana during the holidays, that would be a lump of a coal of a sermon, wouldn't it? I do reserve the right to talk about that in the future, but maybe around the time of New Year's resolutions. Right now, what we're going to talk about is this idea of holiness. And Paul uses this idea of sobriety to under, um, undergird an idea of holiness. And we've been doing a series on longing. What are the things that we long for out of life? And maybe holiness doesn't spring to mind. Maybe holiness is not number one. Peace, comfort, security, rest, solitude. These are all things that we naturally long for, but maybe not holiness. But holiness is a very prominent ideal in the Bible. Jesus had a very distinctive idea about what holiness was, and it's why the Pharisees locked horns with them. They were arguing and negotiating over what holiness actually looked like. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that without holiness, no one will see God. So apparently, it's a pretty important concept. Now, Paul begins this passage with a bit of misdirection. Because he says, now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. But that's exactly what he wants to talk to them about. The idea of timing, the idea of when Jesus will come back. Something about the time or their interpretation of the time is what prompts his instruction. He's reviewing something for them that apparently they haven't gotten from previous letters or previous interactions. And what they're not getting, what they don't understand, what they're misinterpreting is this idea of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is this huge Old Testament concept of the time when God would draw near, that he would come and establish his kingdom once and for all, that he would fulfill all of these Old Testament promises of a coming Messiah, that this was going to be the day of the Lord. And when Jesus comes, what he says is that these promises, this idea of the day of the Lord is consecrated in his coming. It culminates in him. All of these things pointed to him. His life, death, and resurrection was showing that God had not forgotten those promises that he was making good 
on the promise. He was making good of this prophecy, on this prophecy of the day of the Lord. And yet what the New Testament writers pick up on and what Jesus hints at is that there's this still future time that the day of the Lord will be finally fulfilled, that He'll bring the day of the Lord to full conclusion. Now, it takes a bit of digging around. We didn't have a chance to do this because we're just looking at one small passage. But if you dig around in the surrounding chapters of Thessalonians, it seems to be that Paul seems to be saying that the Thessalonians have become confident that that final conclusion of the day of the Lord, the final consummation of all of the promises are very imminent. They could be any moment. In fact, they thought not that it could be, but it will be that the final consummation of the day of the Lord is imminent. And so they could quit their jobs. They could stop being responsible citizens. They weren't worried any longer about cultivating this long lifestyle of holiness. And we see pockets of this throughout church history where different churches or different sects will decide that they know when the coming of the Lord is. They know the day of the Lord is imminent. And so they sell their possessions. They stop going to work. They encamp together. They become very insular. We saw this just a few years ago with the Herald Camping a prophecy that he knew the date. And so all of his followers sold everything they had. They gave up their savings accounts and went to live together. And guess what? They were wrong. And Paul is saying to them and to us, no, you don't know the future. He's telling us that the Thessalonians that. Jesus will come unannounced like a thief in the night. He will come as suddenly as labor pains arrive on a woman. And his, re- his return will come while people celebrate peace and safety. This idea, this phrase, peace and safety, is attributed to a very specific group of people, the Epicureans. And unlike the Pharisees who wanted to make their way in the world by following the rules, the Epicureans wanted to make their way in the world by having fun. These were the people that you would invite to a party. You would accidentally forget to leave the Pharisees off, and you would invite all the Epicureans because they were fun. They wanted to pursue pleasure. And they followed this guy, this philosopher Epicurus, and he's known or identified with this famous phrase, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But this doesn't quite capture his philosophy or the zeitgeist of that particular group of people. In fact, it seems like it's more could be more assigned to the Thessalonians. The means is different, are different, but Paul is arguing that the Thessalonians are doing the very same thing. It's not eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, but it's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow Jesus comes. And we know this. And they're not giving care to responsibilities. They're not working to provide for one's families. They're engaging in irresponsible sexual behavior not pursuing forgiveness with others, not cultivating relationships with outsiders. All of these things are in chapters 4 and 5, and you can go back and read more at home. But all of this is that they're not giving attention to holiness, to a life that is lived, set apart for a very particular purpose. Maybe they thought Jesus' return was imminent. Maybe we think, well, it's never going to happen. It's just pie in the sky. But you see, the life results are the same. Because under either of those two convictions, we end up giving ourselves to things that are very temporary. We cultivate attention to ourselves rather than a life given up to God and given to others. 
And interestingly, what Paul does to correct this isn't just obey the rules, try harder, live up to the expectations, or get back to work because we're going to be here a while. Instead, what he seems to be saying, and what the Bible tells us, is that you're not built for the task of giving your, giving, uh, living for yourself. You're not outfitted to live for temporal things. Verse 5, he says, you are children of the light. You're children of the day. Children of that day. You are children of the day of the Lord. Children of light live unto holiness rather than unto themselves. Now we've been using this term fairly loosely. What is it? What do we mean by holiness? What is it, this life that people of the light live for? Maybe this concept seems a bit quaint, maybe off-putting, because holiness is a concept that religious people have used to set themselves apart from other people. And they, maybe they've become, in your mind, intolerant and intolerable. Or maybe you're a Christian and you're just simply tired. You're tired of this goal of holiness. When am I going to get there? I'm tired of trying to measure up. I'm tired of trying to follow the rules. I'm tired of feeling bad about myself when I don't follow them. Well, the good thing is that both of these are wrong understandings of holiness because authentic holiness strips away pride and all of the ways that we may set ourselves over against and above other people. You're set apart for a task rather than set apart as a result of your moral performance. And as we talked about a number of months ago in the Bible, the, many things are considered whole, holy. The ground is holy. Bowls are holy. Utensils are holy. Money is holy. Bushes are made holy. When God comes and sets this bush aflame, because this place, this plot of ground, this bush is now made holy by God's presence. It wasn't that he looked around and say, said, oh, well, all these other bushes are kind of, kind of ugly. We're going to pick out this very beautiful one. He picked out a bush that looked pretty much like all the other bushes in the desert but he determined to use it for his holy purpose. Truly holy people are astonished that they are used by God. They are astonished by their own unfitness as instruments. Don't you see these other bushes? God, look at them. You could use them, but me? True holiness makes you meek. It makes you modest. It makes you more like Jesus and thus winsome and attractive and more loving. And if you're just tired, and many of us here this, are, this morning are, we have to remember that holiness is primarily something that's done to you rather than something that you do. It's not a self-improvement project by which we make ourselves acceptable to God. There is a progressive element. There is a sense where you can grow into holiness but it's not trying real hard to follow the rules. The Pharisees were the most ardent rule followers around. They were the most morally proficient people you could find, but their moral performance, their goodness, made them uncomfortable with grace. It made them miss it, miss God when He showed up. They didn't recognize Him. Holy people are those people who are comfortable with grace. They're not surprised by their sin, and they're not surprised by the sin of others. 
It's not that they celebrate their sin, but they don't wallow in it. They don't beat themselves up over it. They recognize and repent of moral rebellion, but are also suspect of moral performance and how it makes them unreceptive to grace. And so the holiness that Paul talks about isn't this linear self-improvement project. It's not how well you've come to learn and follow the rules. Holy people aren't those who look like they're having the least amount of fun. But it's about being set apart. It's about first being made holy. You have been made such, Paul says, children of light, children of the day, so live as such. You're people who know the truth. You know the end of all things, so don't live unto yourselves. And very practically speaking, during this time of Advent, a time of waiting, a time of wondering when will all of these promises come true, we're waiting for this return of Jesus to validate this type of life that you've chosen to live, a life of holiness, a life of giving yourself to others. You see, if Epicurus, Epicurus is right, and there are no gods, only myths, only ways that we comfort ourselves about the unknown and about the temporal nature of our lives, then a life lived for personal pleasure and personal gain makes complete sense. Why sacrifice for others? Why love in the face of injustice? Why give away our resources for the benefit of others? Whether today, tomorrow, 50 years, 500 years from now, nobody will remember. Nobody will care. Merry Christmas. But if you belong to the day, you belong to a different story. A different ending where all of your virtuous acts aren't burned up and forgotten and of no use, but all of the good that you work, all of your attempts at holiness, all of your virtuous acts, all the times that you choose to serve someone else rather than your own personal gain, these things begin to be validated for eternity. They echo into eternity. For God did not, verse 9, appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up. What Paul is saying is that God has given you His life. Your future is certain. Those who, of us who are alive now, those who have gone before, together will live with Him. So therefore, encourage one another, build each other up, live holy lives set apart for His purpose. Now maybe you're here this morning because it's Christmas. You're looking for transcendence. There's looking, you're looking for something to give meaning and society just isn't offering. Or maybe being here is a part of a religious hangover from your youth. And I hope that what you'll see this morning is that holiness isn't a threat, but it's an invitation. It's an offer of beauty. That you can be the recipient of the most holy act ever. That God was not only born for you, but He went to the cross for you. He died for you. So that you can be set apart. You can be made to receive His love and His grace forever. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful 
that in Jesus your holiness is no longer a threat. Not only are we saved from our sins so that we can stand in your presence, but Jesus, in Jesus Christ we see holiness as a thing of beauty. He was wholly committed to us. He saw His path. He knew what He had to do to save us. He went to it down that path utterly, wholly, exclusively, undividedly committed to us. Now let us be that for Him. Let us be that for each other. Would You make us holy? Would You make us a holy church in this world? Make us a holy people and help us to more and more be transformed to the image of Your Son in whose name we pray. Amen.